to Slovo, the podcast of the ATA Slavic Languages Division. I'm your host and division administrator, Eugenia Tietz-Sokolska. Today we will be discussing the current digest of the Russian press, or CDRP, a weekly journal that publishes English translations of press materials originally written in Russian. As it happens, I've been translating for CDRP for almost two years, and I was curious to find out more about the journal's purpose, history, and behind-the-scenes processes. To satisfy my curiosity and share what I find out with our listeners, I invited Larry Boguslaw to the podcast. Larry is the editor-in-chief of Eastview Press, which publishes CDRP. In addition to his role at Eastview, Larry is a member of ATA's certification committee and is part of the group that grades Russian to English exams. He regularly teaches and presents talks on translation, literature, journalism, and more, and in his spare time enjoys translating poetry and songs from various languages. Now, on with the show. Larry Boguslaw, welcome to the show. And just jump right in and start talking about CDRP. Could you give us a general overview and talk about what the purpose of the publication is and what, who the intended audience is? Yes. First of all, thank you so much for having me on the show, Eugenia. The purpose of CDRP is to give Western readers, mainly Western readers uh, who don't read Russian in the original, an idea of not so much what's objectively going on in Russia, but what the Russian press um, feels worthy of covering and commenting upon. And it's important to keep that in mind because you know, what we're giving the public is, number one, perspectives that they won't necessarily get from the New York Times or Washington Post, but we don't claim that it's any more truthful than you know, than what than what is anywhere else. You know, what what you're getting is is the perspective of not even just the Russian press, but but a given publication uh, about what is going on in Russia and the world. So, who are there specific groups of people? So, I was thinking, is it for academics? Is it for I mean, American politicians? Um, do you know who reads it? Our readership is mainly academics, libraries at big universities. Uh, subscribe to it. There are a few government agencies uh, that subscribe to it. And there are a few stalwart individuals who are just really curious about about what's going on in Russia for whatever reason, you know, because they are they're either emigres from that part of the world themselves, or they are business people who have past or present ties to uh, Russia or the Soviet Union, where they're just you know, curious individuals. So uh, let's look back a little bit at the history. How did this publication get its start? And how has its, you know, its purpose and its name changed over time? That's a really good question. I was just reading today some things I didn't know about the founder of Current Digest of what was then the Soviet press, Leo Grulio. He was an American-born son of parents who both were born in St. Petersburg. And I don't know how early they came over to American shores, but he was born in the U.S. Then he got a job. He was a newspaper man with only a high school education. And he was working for an American political newspaper during the Great Depression and lost his job and found that there was an opportunity for 
an English language correspondent in Moscow for a paper they were publishing there in, in the mid-1930s. So he went over there and started working for that paper for a few years. And then he came back just before World War II you know, to America, but then he he had learned enough Russian uh, while he was in Moscow that uh, that he became a translator. So he started he started translating articles and books and whatever he could get his hands on. And eventually, in 1949, he had enough contacts uh, in the Soviet press that he uh, started publishing a weekly newspaper, which he called the Current Digest, of basically articles from Pravda and Izvestia, which he translated himself into English uh, and you know, typed up on his typewriter and just circulated them among you know, people he knew in the journalism and academic communities. And that went on for a couple of decades before the American Council of Learned Societies picked it up and made it their publication. But it continued. At some point, he moved it to Columbus, Ohio, uh, where he spent most of his life. And, and that's where it stayed until well after the fall of the Soviet Union. After the Soviet Union ended, it became the current digest of the post-Soviet press. And in 2007, the ACLS sold the publication and its circulation list to Eastview Information Services in Minneapolis. And a few years later, it became the current digest of the Russian press, which is what it is now. I started working for it in 2010. One, one other guy, Matt Larson, and I were hired at pretty much the same time. I was hired as an editor and he was hired as a translator. And we're both still working there. In, uh, in 2007, they hired a, a managing editor, a young uh, journalism student named Ksenia Grushetsky. And Ksenia is also still, still working at the Current Digest and managing it. That is a very long tenure. Yeah. <laughs> wow. We love the Digest. Yeah, I, I very much enjoy working there. And that is part of why I'm curious about it. What I was going to say earlier about the, the so-called perspective of the Russian press, unlike the Soviet press, which was pretty much just one viewpoint, one ideology, the contemporary Russian press is very multifarious. And this was true even before the so-called special military operation in Ukraine. There were a number of points of view uh, represented in the Russian press. Publications Pravda and Izvestia still exist. TAS, of course, still exists. Uh, we don't publish things that are directly from TAS. They're, they're news feeds um, because they tend to be more, they tend to be less detailed than we like to have in our articles. There's not so much commentary. In addition to that, there's Nizavisimia Gazeta, which started uh, shortly after the breakup of the Soviet Union and is still going strong. There's Vietnamisti, which is um, kind of a, a middle of the road publication, not totally pro-Kremlin, although more and more so in recent years. There is also Kamersant, which started as a business newspaper. They tend to have good coverage of, of what's going on in other post-Soviet republics. Uh, they and Yizilisima are both really good on that. And then there are several publications that are openly critical of the Kremlin. And the best known of those, at least since last year's Nobel Prize Award, 
is Novaya Gazeta, you know, for which uh, editor Dmitry Muratov uh, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, but besides Novaya, there is also an online publication called Republic.ru. It was uh, started out as Slon.ru. There is also a publication called Meduza uh, that operates from Riga. I'm trying to think if there if there are others that we also publish in Current Digest. On the opposite side of the political spectrum, there are also two openly communist publications: the Sovietskaya Rossiya, and occasionally we also publish articles from Trud. So it's really quite yeah. There is no no single perspective of the Russian press. It's really a multiplicity of perspectives, and we're proud of the fact that we continue to seek out new sources. Um, for example, we just made a publishing agreement a few months ago with Novia Gazeta's successor, you know, uh, it's sort of expatriate successor, Novia Gazeta Europe, uh, which continues to have really strong independent coverage of world news. This is a you know, perfect segue into the role of the editors, you know, the editor team. So how are articles chosen? So you've sort of laid out the the varying publications that you choose from. I've noticed from what I've been assigned, there's also a variety of topics and geographical areas as well. So how, I mean, for each issue, how do you decide what constellation of issues to cover? That's a really good question. And and I'm glad that I don't have to do that myself uh, because it is really, it is really difficult. It's, it's as much art as science. Uh, You have to be a really efficient reader, you know, to be able to, to search across seven or eight different publications and, and figure out, you know, what, what topics are they covering in common? What unique perspectives are there? Uh, another uh, newspaper that I forgot to mention among the, the pro-Kremlin ones is Rasiskaya Gazeta, and they can be really depended upon to offer substantive coverage. I mean, they have some wonderful, you know, really well-versed commentators, but also very strongly giving you, you know, the most purely distilled uh, version of, of what Putin and his advisors are thinking and what they're telling the Russian people. Um, so there generally is, you know, some objective event that is getting a lot of coverage. You know, for example, it, it could be a, a foreign visit of somebody to Moscow or, or Lavrov's visit to another country or Putin's visit with a delegation. Uh, any of those high-level meetings is definitely going to get coverage. Uh, including you know the annual uh, United Nations meeting you know, that happens around this time of year in New York. Uh, we'll probably be publishing articles on that shortly. And when there's a constellation of articles about one topic, that tends to be grouped into a feature section. And that consists of three to six articles generally. Our selectors, and Xenia right now is doing all of the selection uh, she's moved up to to doing that job. She tries her best to to give a range of opinions about something. So there, you know, there's in any given feature, there's likely to be something from Rasiska Gazeta, uh, something from Nizavisimaya or Vietnamese, more middle of the road, uh, and then an article or two from one of the independents, uh, like uh, Medusa or Republic Novaya. Also, I forgot to mention the Moscow Times which publishes, it has a completely English edition, but they published out of Moscow for decades. And they are now located in Riga, Latvia, where they can safely continue to publish. And besides that, besides the features, there are set 
of rubrics of news that appear in every digest. There's domestic news called the Russian Federation. There is other post-Soviet states, you know, which is everything from the near abroad, the CIS. And then there's uh, international affairs, which could be anything from Africa to Asia to Latin America to good old U.S. of A. And there's always there's almost always something about the U.S., <clears throat> especially now that election season is heating up. You know, the the Russians Russian pundits love to cover you know what's going on lately between the Democrat and Republican parties. Yeah, and there's also, if I understand correctly, there's a, a letter from the editors. Yes. Um, from from the, the CDRP editors, as opposed to editorials yes. from the publications. Yeah, that's an idea that Xenia came up with around 2013. Was it that long ago? Yes, we um, we experimented with a couple of different extra things to put in from the editors. Like for a while, I was doing a news quiz, like how carefully do you read the CDRP? Uh, but the, the idea that's really caught on and been sustainable is the letter from the editors. So right now we are... We're trading off that duty between Xenia and myself and two other freelance editors, uh, those being Steve McGrath and Lucy Gunderson. It's sort of a, a blog, but it's published you know, between the covers of, of the CDRP, where uh, the editor whose turn it is gives their perspective on what's going on in that news cycle. We generally focus on the features, but sometimes there are other articles in, in the other sections, including the, the domestic Russian news section that tie in somehow to the feature. So we try to, uh, we try to come up with a, a common theme, you know, for the week. Like the last time it was my, my turn to do it, it was about election season, you know, because there were, uh, there was an article about predicting the outcome of U.S. elections, but there was also coverage of the preparations for the elections that just took place in the separatist republics in Ukraine. And there was also something about Belarus elections. So it's uh, it's always interesting when you when you see some commonality of theme that, that just happens to be coalescing in that week's news. And it gives us a chance to you know, to sort of inject a little a little perspective of our own, you know, whether it's historical perspective or a little bit of humor. Yeah, it's it's really fun to be able to do that in addition to the translation and editing. Mm-hmm. Nice to be able to do some commentary. Yeah, and to kind of highlight the the ties between the different topics. Yes. So so it sounds like is that how many editors you have four editors or the, that's just the the people who share the letter role. Yeah, those those are our four editors. And, okay, have... and then and then a team of freelance translators so people like me who who get a, mm-hmm. you know, a few articles. And so what it, what is that like coordinating a team of translators and what happens to translations? This is a very personal question for me. What happens to my translation after I send it to you? <laughs> what, what does it go through after that? You know, the, the quality control process that has been set up on the CDRP, I've never worked on, on anything more, you know, that has a more thorough process of editing and proofing and feedback and quality control. I found it really impressive from the beginning when I was working as one of the editors, you know, working at the time under a, under a more senior editor who gave me feedback on, on everything uh, that I edited, all the decisions that I made. Um, so um, although we don't, we don't approve our changes with, with you, the translator, once it gets to the editing stage, 
the editor tracks changes, whatever changes they they see fit on the translation that comes in. Uh, the editor has to check the very detailed style guide that we have for for the CDRP, which it gives you guidance on everything from the construction of an English sentence to whether titles of dignitaries and offices should be capitalized or not. And it also often specifies terminology for departments within, you know, within the police and the electoral commission and and foreign affairs. So the editors have to have to check all that against precedent, either in the style guide or the online database that has every issue of CDRP going back the last you know, 73 years. And as I said, every every decision that the editor makes is shown in track changes, and then it goes on to another stage of proofing. So a different editor will proof every section and then send their feedback to the original editor, who then makes a final decision on it. And if there's something that they can't agree on, uh, then it often goes to the managing editor, Xenia, to make the final decision of how it should look. And especially if there's, let's say, just hypothetically, there happens to be a self-proclaimed office forming in a separatist region of a certain country. That's that's a whole new ballgame for us, you know, to decide what to call that. You know, there's there's likely to be several versions of terminology circulating in the uh, the Kremlin website or TASS or the New York Times or the Washington Post. And you know, how do we decide you know, what we're going to call those new entities? So we often have discussions among ourselves about you know, what it's going to be called and what the terminology will be. And those decisions are not necessarily all entered in the style guide, but they do become part of the precedent. They become part of the database that we'll go on to refer to uh, subsequently. Yeah, so you mentioned the the style guide, which I, I agree is extensive um, and, and very thorough. And I'm curious, you've covered a little bit about how new things that come up get discussed, um, but also that it feels to me like there are some holdovers or, you know, you, you do have this very long body of precedent. So one of the things that spurred me to ask you some of these things is I was wondering about the origin of transliteration rules, because and if there's a section on uh, oh, transliteration yes. that differs based on when certain former republics got their independence. Yes. And, you know, almost every time I translate something these days, you know, for example, Zelensky's name comes up and the, yes. the transliteration, you know, based on precedent <laughs> is following the Russian conventions. Yes. But, you know, these days uh, it's it's kind of politically charged whether you used, uh, you know, the Ukrainian spelling or the, the Russian derived one. So I'm wondering how the, the style guide and those sort of more umbrella decisions change over time and what that process is like on the, the editing side. The publication has been very conservative about uh, about those decisions. And uh, it's a really good question, actually, because I don't know if there's going to come a moment in the future that Kiev starts being spelled K-Y-I-V, like mm-hmm. it is the Western press now, and whether Zelensky's name starts being spelled with two Ys, you know, like, mm-hmm. like it is in uh, American newspapers. Such decisions are made very infrequently. Uh, I remember there was a time... I didn't know exactly what year it was, but Azerbaijan, uh, and we we just came out with a, a book last year on on the 
long-running conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And I did notice that in the early coverage in the late 80s, Azerbaijan was was spelled as a direct transliteration from Cyrillic. So it was it was D Z H in the in the last syllable for that J sound. And I noticed that sometime in the 90s, the digest switched over to spelling it uh, J-A-N at the end, um, the way it is now. But it's very conservative, especially with uh, countries that are still in the post-Soviet space. Uh, the transliteration tends to follow you know, the way it's known in Russia. And that goes for, for you know, Luhansk as opposed to Lugansk as well. That's still spelled with a, with a Russian G, and we, and we haven't changed that to an H. Yeah, although you know that decision might be made in the future mm-hmm. about the quality control process, I forgot to mention what happens after the the back and forth with the editing and proofing. Then it goes to layout in InDesign, and then after it's put in InDesign, still another pair of eyes, uh, usually somebody from another publication within Eastview Press, looks at it just to give it a last go through before it gets sent to the printer. So it's it's really quite quite the multi-stage process. Wow. I think that's that's all the questions that I had. Um, I know you had a couple more talks that you wanted to bring up, particularly the, the importance of independent journalism in Russia. And how do you feel or what is CDRP's role in encouraging, spreading the word, promoting independent journalism in Russia? It is so central to what we do. On the one hand, when we translate and publish an article in Rasiska Gazeta, which you know, which essentially gives the way that the Kremlin sees the world, there is value in that because you know, for for academic purposes, I think it's really important for you know, people who pay attention to foreign affairs to be able to see firsthand accurately what the Russian people are being told about the world. I mean, what what is the Kremlin's perspective on that? And and that was the value of the original um, current digest of the Soviet press. So there already is intrinsic value in in that from an academic perspective. But now now that we have a multiplicity perspectives of journalists writing about Russia and writing in Russian for the most part, it's even more important to capture the full spectrum of ideas that are being circulated in the Russian press and that for the most part, Russians themselves still have access to, even if they're not supposed to. <laughs> um, you know, the mission of, of the modern CDRP is even more vital in a world where you can get, you think that you can get any information you you need from the internet, but there is still so much, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say censorship. We published a an interview with Noam Chomsky recently, where he did say that you know, that the the Western media is is censoring, but I think it's not so much censoring as sort of drowning out the uh, the other perspectives. The dominant perspectives tend to be the only ones that are listened to. So I feel like the the CDRP is holding one of those precious bastions of places within a publication where there can be there could be multiple even contradictory perspectives coexisting within the same publication. And it's really important for readers to to be exposed to that complexity because the same the same set of events can be interpreted in in such different ways. And it's um, 
so vital to be able to publish uh, an article by somebody who is currently in prison. Uh, for example, we recently published something by uh, by Ilya Yashin that uh, after he was uh, arrested for spreading fake news, he was able to to get something published from prison and have uh, something by a deputy in the state Duma, you know, who is defending Russia's position in Ukraine. There's nothing else like it uh, that I know of in the world you know, where a single publication can have both of those in the same issue. And for, you know, for anybody studying Russian or studying Russian area studies, I think it's a irreplaceable resource. Yeah, well, thank you for answering my questions about it, because I, I mean, I agree. It does feel like, in many ways, a unique publication. And uh, I've learned so much from having some of my questions answered. And I'm sure our listeners will, will really appreciate everything you've told us here. So thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, Eugenia. And I'm glad that we have you on our team helping to translate this news from Russia. And I wish that we could give it all away for free, but I, um, it is based on subscriptions uh, to keep everybody paid. Uh, that said, mm -hmm. we do have on our website, you know, from every issue of the CDRP, uh, we publish at least one free article that anybody browsing on eastviewpress.com can access. So I encourage everybody to do that if you're not affiliated with an institution that already subscribes to CDRP. We can put a link to that in the show notes and people can, can go check it out. Yeah, thank you. So thank thanks, you. thanks so much for giving me this opportunity to talk about this publication that I love. Thank you for tuning in to Slovo, the podcast of the ATA Slavic Languages Division. If you enjoyed this show, we invite you to subscribe and listen to past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thank you for joining us.